Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. How do you finish Live 8? 1,100 artists, nine capital cities, simultaneously, 3.2 billion people. How do you finish a show like that? Suddenly I heard this blues guitar player. So I turned around and I saw this this beautiful-looking young man with angelic face playing like B.B. King. I said, my God, he plays well. And I fabulous. we've got to sign him up right away. Well, I was living at the Pierre Hotel in New York at the time. When John used to come over and... A friend of mine's dad, of all people, he just started calling me Slash whenever I'd come over. I don't know why, I was always like, hey, Slash. Out on the beach, getting some sun, and down there in Santa Monica in Venice, California. And uh, who comes walking down the beach but Jim Morrison. Truth was, we used to cruise around uh, and go visit people, you know, that we liked and uh, and play music all the time. That was all Stephen and I did. Corvettes, now through Saturday. My own new album will be there too, probably this weekend, latest Monday. Go get it. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Denny Somak, the producer, the author, the rock historian. Over my long career, I've curated my archive, and I'm here to share it with you. Today, you'll hear some classic tales from some classic artists. Anita? Yeah, how you doing? Okay. Boy, I'm really looking uh, forward to the time where we can be both, uh, both of us can be in the same room. Yeah, won't that be great? uh, For for now, uh, we have to make the best of it. I know you're in uh, sunny Florida. Right. And I'm in uh, crazy California. Our engineer is in Los Angeles. Thank and you. Yes, let's thank Matt for all his hard work. And uh, yeah, we're getting it done. So wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to The Rock Podcast. And you know, Denny, I love how you say the only one that matters uh, for the younger generation that thinks that you're just being a little bit uh, full of yourself. It's a clash <laughs> reference, people. Yeah. Calm down. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, classic tales from classic artists. What do we got today, Denny? We're going to hear David Bowie talk about uh, writing with uh, John Lennon. From Clarence Clemens uh, from the E Street Band, I actually have what I think is, if not his last, one of his last interviews. And I always wanted to ask this question, and he tells it. He's talking about uh, what happened when Bruce called him and fired the E Street Band. I don't think anybody's ever heard anything like this. So I'm going to play uh, Clarence recounting that whole thing. Well, we have uh, Atlantic Records founder Ahmed Erdogan telling how he discovered Eric Clapton playing in a bar in London. A really great uh, Pink Floyd story from uh, Sir Bob Geldof. Uh, so uh, that's, that's, that's all coming up. Let's begin by talking about Pink Floyd. We love the Floyd. They started out in uh, 1965 in London and became one of the most successful and influential bands in popular music. Now, most people are familiar with Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and of course, The Wall. Um, The band had a bit of creative differences, and that resulted in Richard Wright, the keyboard player, leaving the band in 1980. And then a couple of years after Roger Waters departed, now as we all know, David Gilmour and Nick Mason decided to continue Pink Floyd in 1987, and they released a momentary lapse of reason and went on a major world tour. And we all loved it. And we thought at the time Roger would maybe rejoin, but it did not happen. No, it didn't. But in July of 2005, Bob Geldof, who had been the driving force behind Live Aid, was organizing Live Eight to support the global call to action against poverty. And it included the all-star lineup of the reunited Pink Floyd. How'd that happen, Denny? Well, uh, I need a few years uh, after that uh, historic performance, I ran into Bob Geldof and asked him how he was able to get Roger Waters and David Gilmour to speak to one another after all these years. I mean, it was like 25 years. They hadn't even spoken to each other. The reunion of the century, that's what they said. And uh, before I play the story, I want to remind people that Geldof put Live 8 together 20 years after Live Aid. And here he is at Live 8 reminding everybody. Um, Some of you were here 20 years ago and some of you weren't even born. And I want to show you why we started this long, long, long walk to justice. 
It began 20 years ago because many of us around the world watching here now saw something happening that was so grotesque in this world of plenty that anyone should die of want that we felt physically sick and decided we were going to change that. I think I'm just as dismayed today, 20 years later. Tonight in Africa, 50% of that continent is under 16, and most of those children will go to bed hungry tonight, like every night, like every night. And it's precisely why we must make poverty history. It's a great story that you're going to hear. This is from Sir Bob Geldof. And this is what led to the historic reunion of Pink Floyd. Uh, well, I knew them from doing The Wall, the movie. Um, and uh, not my cup of tea, that sort of music, until sort of very late in the day when I suddenly decided I'd go along with the rest of the entire planet and sort of reluctantly agree that maybe they were one of the great bands and Dark Side of the Moon is one of the classic four pillars of rock and well, roll or something. Boys. Floyd without Gilmore is doesn't really have soul. And uh, Gilmore actually is one of the top five, would you say? You know, um, so... I know, I know. I knew Roger in particular from doing the wall. I know Dave from uh, playing with him at the Royal Festival Hall. I sang comfortably known with him and stuff like that. And I know Nick uh, socially. He sort of hangs with some friends of mine. But how do you finish Live Eight? Eleven hundred artists, nine capital cities, simultaneously. Uh, 3.2 billion people. How do you finish a show like that? Paul was going to finish it. You have to finish with a Beatle. I mean, you know, it starts there and comes flows out from that point, doesn't it? So, um, and n nobody, you know, would go over Paul. Literally, none of these guys. I mean, Pete Townsend was on the phone to me one night. He says, he says, well, I'm not going after McCartney. He says, nobody is. And I said, no, that's right. So, you know, I mean, that's you know, well, it's just like respect, a, yeah. you know, and they all do. And um, uh, so uh, I thought, you know, what? What's the great moment like in Live Aid? Where's, where, what do we do? And um, somebody had told me that Nick Mason had said in one of the music mags that, no, they'd never get back together. And then he paused and said, maybe it was something like Live Aid we'd do it. And this was about a year ago. So I rang Nick and I said, were you serious? And he goes, I'm serious. I don't know about Dave and Roger. And I said, should I try? And he said, yeah. And I said, am I trying because you'd like to happen or am I trying because it's viable? And he said, both. And I said, will you help? And he said, that might not be advisable. But And I said, well, will you talk to Gilmore, you know? And uh, he said, okay. So I called Dave and he said, I know what you're going to ask. And I said, okay. And he <laughs> said, I've read it in the paper, what you're doing. He said, I don't think it's a good idea. I said, what, you, you playing or, or the whole thing? He said, I don't think the whole idea is good. You know, you shouldn't go back. And I said, well, I agree with you, but we have to. We have to force these eight men. We have to force them. And I can't think of any other way, I can't think of any other business that can force them. I can't think of sports stars. I can't think of the commercial travellers of the planet binding together. I can't think of journalists binding together or the online guys. Getting, I can't think of one single thing that would force the political leaders of the rich world to bend. And uh, so I said, Dave, let me talk to you. Let me come down. He said, no. And I said, and I said, why? He says, because you'll try and persuade me and it'll be a waste of your time and I'll just say no and we're friends and I don't want to have that. And I said, well, I'm prepared to, you know, I said, I'll still be your mate. That's not a problem. And uh, he said, well, no, I don't want you to come. I said, well, fuck it, I'm coming. So, and I said, and he said, well, you know, and I said, no, now I'm coming. I'm leaving the house. I'm going to Victoria Station. So um, I get to Croydon East, which is a dump. That's where Kate Moss comes from. You know, he thinks it's glamorous, you know. And, um, uh, and I get a phone call. He says, get off the train. I'm not coming to meet you. And I said, I'm in Croydon East. I'm not getting off here, you know. I mean, you get killed. And um, so uh, I said, I'm not getting off. I said, meet me at the station. So he pulls up. And I get there, and he's sort of silent and talking about the weather and English things. And we get to his farmhouse, and we go into the kitchen, we have a mug of tea, and I lay out my stall. And he lays out his, and he ain't going to do it. 
And um, and I said, he said, look, Bob, everything you say is right, which was you never said goodbye to the fans, hundreds of millions of them. I said, all these years later, does that matter? I'd imagine it matters more now than it did then. And I said, I don't think they really understand why it happened. I said, it's not their business, maybe, but you do owe. I said, you do owe them this life with this great house. And, and I said, and you do owe them because they got the music which allowed you to breathe. And I said, so far be it from me to tell you your business. And I said, frankly, you're too old for this nonsense. I said, you and Roger, we're just too old for this stuff. Just grow up. And he goes, well, you know, and then I went to the political thing. If the Floyd gets together, then everyone who bought Darkseid and The Wall and Wish You Were Here and, you know, Piper at the Gates, all those people are going to watch because rock and roll is the lingua franca, not English. You just listen to that. You don't have to understand a word. You get it. And um, he said, well, no, I'm not. And Polly, his wife, was leaning against the Aga cooker and she said, um, I think you've been hard on Bob. And he said, because I keep trying to tell him I don't want to do this. And I said, I hear you, Dave. I just don't hear the reason. It's not enough. And he goes, well, what's, you know, kind of what part of no don't you understand? So <laughs> I said, well, I, I said, I haven't heard no. Drive me to the station and think about it. He was going away for 10 days. I get to the station, I go home, I write this letter, four pages. And I, I said, I refuse your no, was the opening line. And I went through why. Next minute, Waters calls me. Now, Waters, I knew from doing the, the movie The Wall, and he, he said, what did Dave say? And I said, he said, no. He said, bloody hell. So he said, should I speak to him? And I said, well, you should anyway. I said, this is really ridiculous. And he said, what's his number? So I'm giving Roger Waters Dave Gilmore's number. So... Uh, I hear nothing. Nick calls me and says, did you write the letter? I said, yeah. Okay. Did he get it? I said, I don't know. He says, so that's it. Next minute, there's a call two weeks later. He goes, all right, I'll do it. No, no, you know, this is Gilmore. I said, is that the aging and bald David Gilmore speak to me? He goes, yes. And I said, you're a great man. And uh, that was it. Well, I guess the lesson there is that you don't say no to Sir Bob. <laughs> and the result of uh, Geldof's efforts organizing Live 8 was that days later, on July 7th, the G8 leaders pledged to double the 2004 levels of aid to poor nations from $25 billion with a B to $50 billion by the year 2010. Half the money uh, was to go to Africa, and more than 1,000 musicians performed at the concerts, which were broadcast on 182 TV networks and 2,000 radio stations. You know, I was uh, just thinking the other day, and I had completely forgotten that earlier that same year, I think it was in April, Nick Mason put out a book uh, on Pink Floyd, and I went and interviewed him, and I remember asking him, this is before all this, I said, do you think you guys will ever get together? I mean, obviously, everybody would ask him that. And he looked at me, and he said, so he already knew what was going on, because it's obvious now he knew what was going on, because he said to me, well, I wouldn't say never, uh, if it were something like a live aid thing, we might consider. And I didn't think anything of it, obviously. And then a month later, this thing happened. So he You're obviously like knew. There's no question. Anyway, while I was going uh, looking through the ta- and I'll find that full interview. Uh, Inside Out was the book that he put out, the story of Pink Floyd. Uh, we'll play that, and I'll, I'll show you what I what I mean. But anyway, when I was going through the uh, tapes, I I remembered I had this clip from David Gilmore uh, right after. Um, uh, Live 8, he gave his opinion of the whole thing, and uh, here it is. Live 8 was great. It showed me that as much why I wouldn't want to continue doing that. It showed me also how great it was and how good we were. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't something I wanted to revisit on a long-term basis. I want to add that uh, Nick Mason was out on tour before the pandemic hit, and uh, he'll be back out again next summer or if not later this year, maybe in the fall, but I think they, they postponed everything till uh, 2022. We'll see. Nick Mason, of course, the only band member to have played on all Pink Floyd's studio albums. 
and he's been revisiting the group's earliest records. He calls the group that he has on tour Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. And that was the name of their second album, Saucer Full of Secrets. And they're playing clubs and small theaters, and they're playing only music that Pink Floyd had recorded before Dark Side of the Moon. So like C. Emily Play and all the, all the Sid Barrett stuff, really, is what mm-hmm. it is. And he's the only one that can really do that because he's the only one that was in the band all those years. Anyway, uh, did you ever see Pink Floyd? I did not. Well, I probably did. But, um, you know, I guess I was late to the Pink Floyd party. Okay. Along with uh, Geldof, as you heard him say. I was right, one of the when last he said people. that, I was like, you know what? If, if Bob Geldof can admit it, so can I. And I think that happens. You know, I was uh, on the air, Philadelphia, WMMR. And I was doing the midday shift. <laughs> and my program director, I love him to death, Charlie Kendall, he thought it would be better, uh, I don't know why, if he uh, didn't tell me who was coming in to be interviewed and it would be spontaneous. Okay. So the studio door opens one afternoon and a guy walks in, good looking guy. I have no idea who he is. So look around, nobody with him. He sits down, we say hello. I keep playing a couple records. Finally, he catches on. He leans over and he says, um, you have no idea who I am, do you? I said, oh, man, no, no, I don't. And he says, I'm Nick Mason. And I said, I need more. <laughs> and he said, I'm the drummer for Pink Floyd. And I said, now we can do the interview. Welcome to Philly. You know that uh, most of the most people cannot name the four members, let alone the Thank five. Thank you. Right. I mean, there wasn't a poster of Nick Mason in my room. What can I tell you? you well, there's, there, there's a reason for this is, is they avoided giving in. I didn't interview any members of Pink Floyd until the 80s. Well, why was he on tour, do you think, in the mid 80s? Because uh, Pink Floyd got back together without Roger Waters. And it was Gilmore and him because Wright wasn't in the band either. And they were trying to, I remember having this argument, not an argument, but I was having this discussion. Uh, actually, I was in England doing some shows and I had some guests lined up and Gilmore was one of the guests. So I, I, I happened to be in the men's room and he walked in and he's next to me. So I figured this is the best. I'll get the answer. I said, so, uh, David, I got to ask you for years. I've been trying to interview you, you guys and, and, you know, uh, but you're you're out now. Uh, is there any particular reason? He goes, well, yeah, you know, we want to let people know that we're back as Pink Floyd. And uh, that's why we're doing these interviews because they were, you know, nobody knows who they are. Yeah. So, but anyway. I'm sorry I wasted the interview. You know, <laughs> he had to waste it on me. But um, I got an email from you that uh, I guess lately – uh, they asked Nick Mason about his top five albums. Yeah, well, I figured that's your. That's, that's your, my. Well, you know, department. that's right up my. I love the list, and um, I of course agreed. You know, Free Will and Bob Dylan. He calls Bob the greatest songwriter in rock music. Still, uh, Jimi Hendrix acts as bold as love. Um, he calls out Mitch Mitchell as his favorite drummer and most influential. He's a good candidate for our top five right there with Ginger Baker. I don't know now if we have to rethink that. And Thelonious Monk Orchestra at Town Hall, Miles Davis, Jack Johnson. I'll be checking out those two. And then the fifth one was such a surprise. Bruce Hornsby in the range, Halcyon Days. But, you know, that album features Sting, Elton, and Clapton. So I'm going to have to give that another listen as well. So there you go. That's Nick Mason's top five albums of all time. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, Denny, a few months ago, Cream's Goodbye Tour Live 1968 was reissued. It's a four CD expanded edition now and the first authorized release of four complete 1968 concerts. This historic collection features 36 tracks, 29 of which have never been released. We'll discuss Cream more in depth on a future show. And of course, that's uh, Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker. Got a whole complete episode on that. Um, but I was looking for stories um, about how uh, the group got started when I was working on that episode. And I found this. Uh, they got going after Ahmed Erdogan, the legendary founder of Atlantic Records, uh, happened to be in London. He was at a place, Scotch Club, at a party he was hosting for Wilson Pickett, you know, the Wicked Pickett, uh, Midnight in the Midnight Hour, Land of a Thousand Dances, uh, on and on and on. Anyway, uh, Ahmet uh, was there with uh, impresario Robert Stigwood, you know, the, the guy best known for managing the Bee Gees and Cream and producing movies like Grease and Saturday Night Fever. 
Anyway, uh, Amit tells the story. Wilson Pickett had had a few couple of big hits and was touring uh, Great Britain. And uh, we went there for some press conferences, and I gave a party for Wilson at the Scotch Club in London. There were a lot of press people and disc jockeys. I mean, it was all the music business people there. And at one point, we were having a drink, and I was facing away from the band, and there had been some little band playing up in this club, and then then they had, like, a group of other people went up who were just jamming. Uh, and I had my back to the bandstand, so I t- I, suddenly I heard this blues guitar player. So I said to myself, oh, that must be Pickett's guitarist, you know? So I said... I said, Wilson, I said, your guitar player sure sounds good. He said to me, he said, my guitar player is having a drink at the bar. So I, so I turned around, and I saw this, this beautiful-looking young man with angelic face playing like B.B. King. And I said, my God, who is that? I said, what's well, Eric Clapton? I said, Eric Clapton. I said, my God, he plays well. And I dig with was standing next to me, and he says... You really think he's great? I said, he's fabulous. We've got to sign him up right away. So Stigwood got with him, and that's how they formed Cream. As a side story, and this is a total coincidence, Eric Clapton first heard uh, Dwayne Allman playing guitar on the hit version of Hey Jude by Wilson Pickett. This was years later, after this incident, obviously. Uh, and in fact, he has stated on several occasions that he thinks Allman's solo on that record is one of the best he's ever heard. And uh, that's obviously how he got him to uh, play on Layla. I found out they're making a movie of the life and times of uh, Ahmed Erdogan. Anita, did you see the movie Ray about Ray Charles? I did. Uh, Uh, Yeah. You know, Ahmed Erdogan, that's a great story. Uh, I know Curtis Armstrong played Ahmed Erdogan in the movie Ray. So who do you think should, uh, should play him in this movie? And think of the other casting, like, you know, who should play Phil Collins, or Eric Clapton, Stephen Stills? Well, Gr- I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say, but I, I really believe that I would rather have an actor who sings than a singer who acts. Because I really think you get a better performance when you think about Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Ash, you think about the Ray Charles story with Jamie Foxx. Right. You know, I, I think, and, and also, um, James Brown, get on up. You know, it, these were really quality performances by actors. Right. I think it's a lot easier to cast an actor who can sing. Chadwick Boseman was superb yeah. as James Brown. They don't have to actually look like him. They can just capture the essence, and then you could get somebody else uh, to sing. Worst ever was the Oliver Stone Doors movie. That was... And you have to remember, I'm, I'm living in Hollywood at that time, and he's got those blocks of sunset. Oliver Stone has blocked off those blocks of sunset for months. And, man, it was hard to get around. So we hated him already. And <laughs> then he went and he painted the whiskey red again. And we didn't really hate him for that. But then that movie came out. And I'm telling you, I had to stifle my hysterical laughing. That was one of the worst. I don't even know if uh, it was the worst movie, but it's definitely the worst movie wigs in the history <laughs> of movie making. But yeah, um, maybe Paul Giamatti could play Amit. Just so you know, even the Doors didn't like the Doors movie. Well, how could they like it? It was terrible. <laughs> you know, they're going to do an Aretha Franklin movie, and Aretha, of yes. course, was a, a big, yes. um, you know, big part of Amit's life. And Jennifer Hudson is going to be Aretha. Right. Mm-hmm. So now you got a singer. But can she act? But right. we know she can because she did Dreamgirls. So, yeah, so I'm going to be uh, really anxious to see this biopic. I'll never call it a biopic. I don't care what anybody says. Even if that's the correct way of saying it, I'm never going to say it. So far on this episode, we heard a great Pink Floyd story uh, told by Sir Bob Geldof, the story of how guitarist Eric Clapton was discovered. And I think it's time we had a Zeppelin story. So, uh, you know, I like to include a Zeppelin story whenever I can, because I got a lot of them. And this one has to do uh, with the band uh, Queensryche. Great band out of Bellevue, Washington. And it seems that the band was uh, in London rehearsing for a tour after their 
their big song, Silent Lucidity. And while at the rehearsal location, the band had an interesting encounter with one of their idols, Jimmy Page. So talk about a close encounter in the bathroom, or loo, as they say in England. Here's Jeff Tate, lead vocalist of Queensryche. Years ago, uh, the band had just been signed to EMI, and uh, we went to London to work on our first record and record it. And uh, we were rehearsing at a place called Nomus uh, Rehearsal Studios. And uh, we'd been there all day, and we'd been locked in a very small room with Marshall amps on 10 and drums. So we're in the lobby, cabs are coming to get us, and the cabs are here, and uh, we're walking out the door, and Jimmy Page walks in the front door. And uh, Chris, our guitar player, just about lost himself at that moment because he was a huge Zeppelin fan, huge Page fan. What I remember was there was kind of a big hubbub going on because we were leaving and he was coming in and a lot of disorder. Next thing I know, the guys in the band are in the cabs and they're going, come on, let's go. But Chris is nowhere to be found. So I go back into the the studios to find Chris and search everywhere. I can't find him and uh, hear this music coming from the men's room. So I walk in the men's room and there Chris and Jimmy are in the men's room and they got the guitar cases open and Jimmy's got his foot up on the men's urinal. He's got Chris's guitar in his hand and he's showing Chris how to play Bronyer. <laughs> and it was just, I wish I had a camera at the moment because it was just striking. But anyway, he ended up taking us out to dinner and, you know, hanging out for the evening and telling us Led Zeppelin stories. So that was a real wonderful treat to uh, be a very young man starting out in the music business and getting to meet somebody like him. Brush with greatness. Yeah, and actually turning out to be a very nice man. You know, you, know, you never want to meet people that you respect, their art, and them to be uh, less than human. So that was uh, Jeff Tate of Queensryche. I want to play this for you since it leads into our uh, next encounter, and this is a good example of some of the things you can expect to hear on this program. I mean, where else are you going to hear John Lennon doing a commercial for his own rock and roll album. This is from 1975. It's a classic. Lennon was on the radio in City uh, previewing his new album at the time. Well, here it is. Hi, Corvettes, the world's largest seller of records and tapes, is offering super special prices for the holiday. Choose from the top stars like Minnie Rippet and LaBelle, Elton John, Goody, Neil Diamond and Carole King, plus Stevie Wonder, Temptations, Barry White, Love Unlimited, Jackson 5, Chicago, and many more. All LPs from Columbia, Columbia A&M, MCA, Motown, and 20th Century Labels. Series 598 are sales priced at just 327 each. And Series 698, 387 each at Corvettes, now through Saturday. My own new album will be there, too, probably this weekend, latest Monday. Go get it. <laughs> Is it going to be there by the weekend? Yeah, I asked, I asked Capital, and they said it'll be there possibly this weekend, definitely the early Monday or Tuesday. So, uh... Go get it, folks. It'll be in the stores. John Lennon playing DJ (laughs) in connection with the release of his album, Rock and Roll. You never know what you're going to hear on this show. (laughs) Hearing him mention Corvettes is so funny, Danny, because uh, anybody who lived on the East Coast of this country either had Corvettes or they had, you know, a different version of Corvettes. But before Costco, before... Two guys from Harrison. Wasn't that a different version? Probably. And I'm thinking of... uh, Oh yeah, because we just called it two guys. We didn't right. call it. We called it two guys and um, Woolworths also. Uh, right. That's where my mom bought Meet the Beatles and brought it home for me. Ah, there you go. Yeah, she was working at uh, the Levittown Shopping Center, and she bought. She yeah, she went there and bought that for me and brought that. So that moved my mom to the top of my list. <laughs> now, did she buy you the stereo or the mono version? She, whatever came out, whatever they both came out. Remember, you used know. to choose stereo or mono when it was a dollar more? I don't remember. I, I, I put it on my little record player in my room. I, I don't even think I knew the difference between mono and stereo. A lot of people listening to this uh, podcast are going, yeah, yeah, I remember stereo, mono, the dollar extra for the stereo. And it said full dimensional stereo. Oh, well, if it was, no, if it was a dollar extra, then no, my mother would not okay. have done that. Right. But uh, she did bring home uh, a couple of the fanzines that they had at the time. And I wish I still had those for eBay, you know? Yeah. Uh, you remember those magazines they put out uh, all about the Beatles? So when sure. The, yeah, so sure. she brought those home for me too. And I remember uh, I looked at those every day for like a year. 
All right. Well, David Bowie, let's talk about David Bowie. His Young Americans album was released in March of 1975, and it included his first number one song, Fame, which was co-written with John Lennon and Carlos Alomar. Yeah, it's funny. Bowie did not have a number one record until he collaborated with uh, John Lennon. And uh, a fun fact, if you're doing music trivia. So here's David Bowie telling how that whole thing came about. Well, I was living at the Pierre Hotel in New York at the time. When John used to come over and I was doing the album at the time, the Young Americans thing. And uh, it inevitably came about that he said he wanted to come down and uh, hang out for a bit. And we were down there one night, and uh, Carlos Alomar was playing a riff that we'd um, got for uh, an old flair song called Foot Stomping, and John liked it a lot and went into the studio as well with a guitar and just started singing over it. And uh, that sort of became fame. Well, another milestone that we recently noted was the 45th anniversary of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. It came out August 25th, 1975. And last October, Bruce released his Letter to You. It's his 20th studio album. I remember seeing the band for the first time in uh, 1974, April 19th, the State Theater. I think they're just about to tear that down in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And through a series of comedic events that you can read about in uh, my book, uh, I was there for sound check. And I was supposed to be up in the box office, but I heard them count off, twist and shout, and I ran down the aisle and... I stood there. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And after the, after the number was over, Clarence called me up to the stage and he said to me, he leaned over and he said, when my wife gets here, please see that she gets right in and take her to her seat. And I said, definitely, definitely. Anything else? And he said, yeah, when my girlfriend arrives, take her right backstage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, <laughs> He, he That's Clarence. Lady. Yeah. I think he was married like four times. At least. At, at least. least. Yeah. Then, I... Yeah. A million women. Uh, Clarence. I remember seeing Clarence sitting in a hot tub at the Sunset Marquee. And uh, he had his arms, you know, picture him with his arms around two blondes in a hot right. tub. Yeah. And I walked by and I said, how you doing? He said, I am fine. I said, yeah. <laughs> I think he was smoking a cigar. Yeah. I said, yeah. He He really enjoyed life. He was... He was larger than life, and he enjoyed life. And I know you have a great story from Clarence. Yeah. Well, I had, a, I had a chance to work with Clarence when he put out uh, that book, Big Man, Real Life, and Tall Tales. And <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was written by Clarence and his longtime friend, writer-producer Don Rio. Um, and uh, they take you through Clarence's life from childhood to the present, which was at the time 2009 or so, somewhere around there. Now, Clarence was uh, totally uh, into music right up until his tragic death in 2011. What's great about interviewing someone who has an autobiography out is that you can really ask them just about anything. So, uh, of course, I wanted to know how he found out, because I'd never heard this anywhere. You know, uh, when Bruce fired the E Street Band, you know, how did he find out about it? What was he doing? So Clarence starts to tell, he says, you know, he was on tour with Ringo and the All-Star Band, because uh, I think he did like six or seven Ringo tours. Anyway, he was, he was touring with Ringo, and he's in Ringo's hotel suite, and the phone rings. And he didn't pick it up right away, so Ringo, it was his cell phone, Ringo answered it, and it's Bruce. <laughs> so Ringo hands the phone to Clarence, and that's where he gets the news. Let Clarence tell you. Well, I'm sitting in my room, and I get this call, and uh, I'm talking to Ringo, and we're just shooting the shit, and the phone rings, and, uh, and I don't use it. I never, I still don't answer my phone, you know. I, every once in a while, I'll do it, but Ringo answers the phone. He says, he's talking to this guy, yeah, this is my phone, and he's, like, talking like, who the fuck is that, you know? He said, it's Bruce. I said, oh, no. I picked the phone up, and... Uh, he says, big man, it's over. So I said, okay, I'll be home, be home tomorrow if you need me. I thought he was meant my, the Ringo's tour was over. You got to come back because we're going back in the studio. So I'm just thinking that's what's happening. And he says, no, I mean the band. I mean, it was, it was so dulling. It was such a, it was just, 
something so unreal to me at the moment. You know, right now I feel such an empty cush when I hear think of that. It was almost like somebody hit me with a bag of sand in the gut, you know. And I was stunned for a few minutes. You know, I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. And, and I said, what do you mean it's over? He says, I decided to do something else. That's the most painful thing I've ever heard because my whole life was... But then I thought for a few minutes, I said, you know, this guy has the right to do what he wants to do. This is his life. This is his band. And if that's what he wants, that's what he has to do. But I knew that it wasn't going to be over. I knew that we'd be back together. And that's the only thing that kept me from really getting crazy because I knew it would come back. So he needed to go out and see what he really has. And he would miss the band. He would know that this is this is it. You know, he didn't see it. Maybe, maybe he needed a reminder. Maybe he needed something to 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 make it real again for him. And uh, so, and then I then I thought I said, you know, this also gives me a chance to do some other things in my life. You know, give me a chance to venture out and try some other things. You know, so and that's what happened. We we all went out and started doing different stuff. And then finally he called us back, you know, which I knew was going to happen, you know. I just knew it from the time he told me. The late, great Clarence Clemens. He was so loved. There's even a brewery that makes a tribute beer called (laughs) Big Man's Brew. It's a citrusy light IPA, by the way. (laughs) Now to another Jersey guy, John Bon Jovi. I found this clip. I think it's from 1986. Yeah. Bon Jovi uh, toured America as the opening act for Rat, who were headlining arenas in support of their second album, Invasion of Privacy, of Your Privacy. Uh, I think the tour was called the World Infestation Tour. And uh, <laughs> any Bon Jovi stories, Anita, before I get to this? Absolutely. I just want to know who it was that decided to add the extra T to Rat. You know, it was, like, was that in a meeting? Was that a typo in the contract? (laughs) Anyway, yes, of course, um, being a Philly DJ, uh, John Bon Jovi uh, was like local. So I think his first interview was done at the radio station I was working for, WYSP. And I have a photo of us all together. Uh, I'll post it on our website, therockpodcast.com, and uh, along with all, all the other photos we have. And then when the band was uh, recording 7,800 Degrees Fahrenheit, uh, I believe that was 1985, they recorded it at the warehouse in Philly with Lance Quinn. Right. And the other half of Lance's days spent with Nils Lofgren. And um, I was hanging with Nils at that time. So I would do my morning show and then I would spend the rest of the day in the studio with Nils and then Bon Jovi would come in. So I got to see a lot of them back then. And, you know, they were crazy. Bon Jovi was very serious about his success. You know, he started sweeping up the studio. His cousin worked at... Um, Tony Bon Jovi. Yeah, Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi, right. yeah. So, you know, you got to admire uh, what he wanted to do, what he set out to do, and, and what he's accomplished. And uh, say what you will, but if you go to Australia or you go to other places, if you go to Europe, he's huge. He's, he's, he's huge in Iceland. Yeah, he's Dylan. He's, you know, it's amazing. I I remember I was in New York and I met a woman, told her what line of work I was in. She, did you ever meet Bon Jovi? She's from Australia. Did you ever meet Bon Jovi? And I was like, well, yeah, but I met, no, no, no. Tell me about Bon Jovi. And I was like, okay, there you go. But yeah, he he was great. And um, I don't like all the backlash he's getting lately because, you know, he's a good guy. Yeah, I, I, I remember this interview. Uh, because I had a copy of the Slippery When Wet album with the band yes, cover. Yes. Uh, a woman with a little too much uh, cleavage for Walmart. As if you Remember could that? ever have yeah, too yeah. much cleavage. But I, I got him to, and, and I had gotten a, a copy of the sleeve because they, 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 they recalled the records. They'd already printed the sleeves. So somebody pulled a few out of the trash, I guess. And anyway, I got one of them. So I got him to sign it. Collector's item, I guess, right? So uh, in this bit of history, you've got John, Bo- uh, John Bon Jovi uh, summarizing the start of the band. Imagine we're all from a, like the northern tip of the shore and 
I knew of these guys, but didn't know them. And so in putting the band together, once Runaway was on the radio, I said, well, I can finally play some clubs and make a couple bucks because of Runaway being on the radio and people knowing a little bit about the band because I wouldn't play any covers. So I got Dave, and I told Dave that I had seen Alec in this band Phantom's Opera and uh, that I would you know, like to talk to him. I told Al what I was doing. He joined the band. He led me to Tico, you know, when I asked about a drummer. I said, I need a drummer. And uh, he said, Tico's between albums with the knockouts. And maybe he'd come and do some clubs. You know, this, was, this whole band was supposed to last three or four weeks, you know. So T came down to rehearsals and learned a couple tunes. And uh, we started playing out. And then Richie was at the, a show in Jersey and came up to me after the show. He said, I want to be your guitar player. And as I just, like, kept walking into the dressing room, you know, and I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I heard him play, and that was it. You know, I just said, yeah, you're in. And so, uh, you know, Al had played with him before, and so they knew each other. And uh, that was the band. I mean, it came together real quick. You know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Anita, is going to be announcing the uh, finalists for induction in a few weeks. So uh, we should schedule an episode to discuss their choices. This is always a topic for a disagreement. In 2021 uh, will be no different, right? Well, it will be different, Denny, in that... Uh... They've adjusted their schedule due to the pandemic, and now the annual ceremony will take place in the fall from now on. Instead of the spring, it'll be now uh, from now on November in Cleveland. Sounds lovely weather-wise, doesn't it? So November 7th on HBO, Bruce and Ringo are going to be there, among many others. And uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I can't wait to disagree with their choices this year. Since you mentioned uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or I did, uh, here's an interesting fact I came across as I figured uh, we'd have an episode on the, on the Rock Hall nominees. But let's just go back. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, I found this fact. I thought it was interesting. Are the only group where each member of the band is a double inductee in the Rock Hall. Crosby's been inducted once for his work with the Birds and again for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Graham Nash inducted with Crosby, Stills, and Nash in 97, and then the Hollies in 2010. And Stephen Stills was inducted twice on the same night with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Buffalo Springfield in 1997. So here's a clip featuring all three of them on the formation of the group. Dave was a great fan. I've been uh, a fan of Stevens from the very first time, man. Yeah, we used to hang, just hang a lot, you know. Yeah. He had this old Bentley that we used to cruise around in. We'd go find other guitar players and blow them off. <laughs> blow them off, man. <laughs> now, the truth was, we used to cruise around uh, and go visit people, you know, that we liked and uh, and play music all the time. That was all Steven and I did. Uh, we had a mutual friend, Cass Elliott, from the Mamas and Papas, and she uh, introduced me to Crosby one day. And he intrigued me. He was a different person than I'd ever met before. Uh, I admired his songs. And uh, we became friends. He came to England once with the birds. I took him into uh, to my apartment with me and, uh, and my first wife. And uh, he stayed with us for about a month. And uh, we became very firm friends. I came to, back to America with him. At one point, he introduced me to Stephen, who introduced me to Neil, and the rest is history. We just sang the song in, in, in Cass's living room. And he says, man, he says, uh, sing that again. Okay, we're singing again. He said, sing it one more time. Stephen and I had been singing a two-part for a while, and we had a real nice two-part on it. But Nash, you know, Nash had been filling in the third part for Everly Brothers Records all his life, you know. And he knew how to think of a third part, man, that would just scare you to death. And when I put a harmony on Stills's, uh In the Morning When You Rise, and then I dragged Nash over, and I said, Nash, sing the next part. He sang the next part, and we all three looked at each other and said, ah, oh, drool, slobber, you know. It was the prettiest thing we'd ever heard, you know. It was the nicest sounding, it was the nicest thing we'd ever heard. We loved it beyond any kind of control, you know. It was like we wanted to do that and only that forevermore, all the time. Skip eating, breathing, sleeping, anything else. We wanted to do that. So far, we've heard stories from the early days of Cream, from Bon Jovi, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I love hearing these kinds of stories. They're from the early days when when bands got started. Um, And in fact, we got another one coming up. Lady, from the moment I saw you Standing, whoa, 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 
Here's one I found from uh, JY, uh, James Young, guitarist and founding member of Styx, and how the band was all set when he joined, and they started out and did what most bands do. They tried to get a record contract. So I'll let you hear the story from JY. I was getting out of college at the time, and I just uh, tried to put another group together, but I realized that I wanted to go out on my own, and uh, with a couple of the guys in college, their time would be limited. So I joined up with uh, John and Chuck and Dennis and JC. About two months later, we decided to do a demo just kind of to get work, basically, to send around to schools and colleges and club owners and the like. And we did three originals and three copy songs, and uh, RCA had a studio in uh, Chicago. Wood and Nickel heard this demo, and they decided that they liked what the group was doing, and we just they thought we could use a little different direction. And uh, from there, Wood and Nickel signed us based on you know all this other stuff that had gone on the year and a half before that. That's JY from Styx talking about the early days. You know, this statistic is pretty amazing. Um, Styx have had four consecutive albums certified multi-platinum. Think about that. Four triple million sellers in a row. The band hails from Chicago, and they are still out there playing. They still do 100 dates a year. I try and go see them every year. And uh, it's just a great, great show. Let's, let's just, uh, I don't have to tell you who's coming up. Uh, once you hear this little clip, you'll know exactly who's next on the show. I found this bit from Pete Townsend. I think it was uh, early 2000s after uh, John Entwistle had passed. And he talks about the first music he heard, which was post-war dance music. In fact, his dad had a band. But I thought his comment was, was really interesting. My journey is an interesting one. You know, I, I was a kid um, of two years old riding in a, 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 you know, a dance band bandwagon. You know, and that's what I remember. I can remember, you know, the days that I started to go to school as being incredibly painful because, you know, music changed. You know, I stopped hearing that wonderful music that I heard. So the first music that I ever heard was the Squadronaires, my dad's band, were a damn good band playing really good post-war dance music. So, and they were echoing the work of, you know, Woody Herman, Louis Armstrong, uh, Duke Ellington, the Basie Band, uh, Benny Goodman, uh, some good stuff being played there, you know, and that's what I grew up with. Now, a lot of that writing is very much about harmony, so... Because like any other kid after the war, I was dislocated from that stuff. You know, once you see, then suddenly we get into sociology land, you know. That music was great music, but it belonged to the previous generation who'd fought the war. It was about their experience. It was about their life. It wasn't about mine. And so when I actually came to create my harmony, like I said, I had to go and look in, go in search of my roots. I had to f reconnect myself. Well, I remember seeing John Entwistle at the China Club. Martin Chambers and I would go and he'd be like, is that John Entwistle? I said, I think it is. So yeah, wow, that, that, uh, that's pretty amazing. Um, just to think about your dad having a <laughs> dance band and then you yeah. become the who. All right, anyway, we have time for one more before we okay. wrap up this episode. Okay, by the way, I just want to say this because I, I got a lot of Pete Townsend. He's one of my favorite people to interview. He's really cool. He tells great stories. And he's a fan. He loves playing trivia. Uh, in fact, I gave him a Trivial Pursuit rock and roll version one time. And he just went bananas. Well, I guess we bit. have time for one more before we wrap up. Since we are talking about early days, I came across this uh, from Slash of Guns N' Roses, and he talks about how he grew up, says his parents were hippies, his father designed album covers, and uh, also how he got his name. Also says he, he got to know people like Joni Mitchell and David Geffen. I thought you might want to hear this uh, this story. Now my birthday is uh, July 23rd. I was born in England. I came out here when I was a little kid. And so basically I'm a Hollywood rat. You know what I mean? Yeah, basically, you know. Um, I grew up, I, I was born right during the, the big 60s. You know, that kind of thing. So I grew up with hippie parents and all that stuff. 
Yeah. My real name? Yeah. Uh, I don't. It's not that I don't. I'm against it. It's just I don't use it. I haven't used it since uh, I was about 13. Though its significance is, you know, that my name my slash is significant as far as calling me anything. <laughs> A friend of mine's dad, of all people, just started calling me Slash whenever I'd come over. I don't know why. I was always like, "Hey, Slash," you know. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> just stuck. I was in the music business ever since I can remember, and you know I've always been around it, which is probably why one of the reasons I can deal with it so well, and I haven't been, haven't succumbed to like excessive drug use or anything like that. And it's probably because I was around it when I was young. And my parents, um, my mom used to make clothes for rock stars, especially in that time in the '70s. It was real extreme, so I've been around a lot of real extreme stuff. And then uh, my dad used to do album covers for actually for Dave Geffen. A lot of the early Joni Mitchell album covers, um, Neil Young and the Crazy Horse albums. Um, who else was doing it then? Uh, I don't know. There was a lot of people, but the, a lot of them, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, are the only ones that are really still around. Um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I think there was a couple things, but the the other people he worked for were happening then, but they're not around now. You know? I know Joni Mitchell pretty well. You know, um, let's say I know David Bowie. You know, from when my mom did clothes for him. Um, I got to meet Keith Moon when I was younger. Uh, let's see who else do I know? Nobody really that I've 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 kept in contact with because these are these are friends of the parents that I were just people I was around. But Joni's a sweetheart. Well, Slash had an amazing life, and uh, he touched on this briefly, but his parents were very cool. His mother's name was Ola Hudson, and she designed stage clothes for John Lennon and Ringo and David Bowie. She even had a relationship with David, and they're part of a permanent collection at MoMA in New York. If you ever get to go there, uh, check it out. And his father, Anthony Hudson, designed album covers uh, for Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, including Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark. I think we can all close our eyes and see that album cover. So yeah, I think Slash grew up uh, possibly the coolest kid ever with the best parents. (laughs) (laughs) We have some some great shows coming up. In addition to these uh, classic tales, we have some great guests coming in the next few weeks. Uh, I know I spoke to Dave Mason. He'll be coming on. I spoke to Alan Parsons. Uh, he's going to be coming on. Uh, we're just getting the word out about the show. I'm sending out invitations. Uh, Anita, you're contacting some of your friends. So I, I think we're going to have some great stuff, but we always got this classic material here uh, to pull from. So I hope you'll join us for the next show. And if you want to hear about a particular artist or something that you think is episode worthy, just let us know at uh, hello at the rockpodcast.com. Okay, well, that's it for now. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Denny. Thank you, Matt. So long. Thanks for joining us. This is The Rock Podcast, the only one that matters.